Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2106 of our trek to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing our ongoing series of messages that I delivered to Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for your life. Now I've got some good news for you. And Chris already pointed this out. <laughs> but I was going to say this anyway. As I had originally intended to cover Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 48 all today. And I started going through the message and I told Paula, I just can't cover that much especially with the children's message and communion afterwards. I don't think you'll want me speaking an hour. And then everything on top of that. So we cut that in half. Good news is we're only going to go through verse 30 today. Um, And we're continuing on the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian Righteousness, part one. Next week will be part two, the spirit of the law. And so far, Jesus has spoken of a Christian's character and the influence it will have on the world if we exhibit this Christian character and our characters also bear good deeds or good works. And now Christ proceeds in his message to define further this character and these good works in terms of righteousness. Now I like to call this, instead of righteousness, because that's too big a word and I can't spell it, so I like to say right living. So God wants us to know how to live rightly. Jesus explains that right living, he's already mentioned it twice in the character traits, which we as his disciples should hunger after in verse 6, and we may even suffer if we conform to God's moral law, verse 10. And in our passage today, we will learn that our good deeds, which we'll call right living, must be better than the right living of the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. And that's in verse 20 today. And our good deeds are deeds of obedience. Jesus began a sermon with the Beatitudes, and I want to point this out. The Beatitudes were in the third person. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They weren't in reference to anyone in particular. Then he continued on in his sermon in the second person when he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And in today's verses, he changes to the authoritative first person and uses which uses for the first time a unique and dogmatic formula where he says, I tell you the truth, verse 18, and I warn you, verse 20. So in verses 17 through 20, 17 through 20 is the first section that teaches us about a bridge of God's old covenant, the Old Testament, which was focused on the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, and this bridge now to the new covenant, which is established in his worldwide kingdom. So we go from a single nation to the entire world. And in contrasting the New Testament with the Old Testament, we're contrasting the good news, which we refer to as the gospel, and the law. And it covers, his teachings on this covers the remainder of chapter 5. So we'll cover it this week and next week. In the entire passage, I did list in the bulletin, but as I said, I backed off and we'll only do half the message today. But as we cover Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 30, the entire passage through verse 48 is broken down into seven lessons that we must learn. And these lessons will cover the first three today, 
and the remainder next week. The first lesson is teaching about the law. The second is teaching about anger. The third is teaching about adultery and lust. The fourth is teaching about divorce. The fifth is teaching about promises. The sixth is teaching about revenge. And the seventh is teaching us on how to love our enemies. So John, if you can put the first passage up here. I'm using the New Living Translation in the message today because that's what I use in my personal devotions. And I thought it read a little bit more continuity with the message that we have today. So if we can get all that on. It's a longer passage there. I think that covers most of it. But read along with me. Verses 17 through 20. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers and the, of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is telling us not to be misunderstood why he came. It was not to abolish the law of Moses. It was to accomplish the law's purpose. And only Christ could accomplish this because he's the only one that could fulfill the entire law. And that is one why we don't have to live under the law today because Christ has accomplished its purpose. And the first, we have three points comparing the law and the gospel. First, the Old Testament contains doctrinal teaching. We refer to it as the Torah, which is commonly referred to the first five books of the Bible. And it's usually translated in this Bible as the law, which really means revealed instructions. All the biblical doctrines are there, and yet the law is only a partial revelation of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law in the sense of bringing it to completion by his person, his teaching, and his work. The Old Testament gospel is like this bud of a flower. Now, if you see this bud of a flower, unless you really know what type of flower it is, you might not understand what the flower will look like. So this is the gospel in the Old Testament. We, don't, we could see glimpses of it. We could see it's starting to break through, but we really don't understand what the flower will look like. When Christ came and the New Testament was fully revealed, Christ was revealed in the New Testament, then we see the full flower. We can see that these are one of my favorite. These are Granny's peonies, and these are the last of this year's. I barely had any I could could clip this morning, but this is the gospel in the New Testament. The full revelation of Jesus Christ is the difference between the Old Testament where we could barely see the glimpse and the New Testament where we see the full flower of the purpose that Christ came to earth. The second point is that the Old Testament contained predictive prophecy. Much of it looked forward to the days of the Messiah and it either foretells him in the word or foreshadows him in, in type. Jesus fulfilled in all the senses what was predicted that was to come to pass through him. They were just a shadow. The Old Testament, we see glimpses of the Messiah. And if you lived in the Old Testament times, you would really not be able to see the full picture of the Messiah. It's easy for us to look back in the 21st century where we have the full Bible and the complete revelation of God 
and say, oh, I see the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. But if you were an Old Testament patriarch, you wouldn't understand it as we understand it today. And that was just a foreshadow. In fact, one verse in the New Testament says, if the angels knew why Christ had come, they would never have crucified him because it was to bring salvation to the world. There is a, but a shadow of what is to come, a substance belonging to Christ. And it's like when Paula makes a quilt. Now, I'm not sure I fully understand this, but she takes a perfectly good piece of, of material, big piece of material, and then she cuts it up into these little pieces. And she'll cut various shapes and various sizes of pieces. She'll cut various colors of pieces. And in my mind, all I see is pieces of material. And I say, how in the world will that ever become a quilt? Well, Paula has in her mind what the quilt will look like. And these same materials that I just held up in little pieces will eventually be pieced together in an entire quilt. And this is one, actually, her mom also helped her. So to, from these little scraps of pieces of material, we have this, what I consider a very beautiful quilt. And it's so heavy, too. It's nice to snuggle under. So this is the full revelation of Christ. This is the revelation of Christ in the Old Testament. And this is why they didn't fully understand what the Messiah was to become. Thanks, John. Appreciate John helping me out today. So once we understand that the Old Testament, the law was never completely fulfilled, and it was Christ that was fulfilled because he was the only one to, to, to completely fulfill it. And the Third Old Testament contains ethical precepts. It's the moral law of God. Yet they are often misunderstood. The law of God, we see all these stringent laws, and we don't understand them. And more often than not misunderstood, they're also disobeyed. Yet Jesus fulfilled them on his very first instance of obeying the law. Jesus fulfilled the entire law. He came for that purpose. And he does more than obey them himself. He explains what obedience will be involved for us as his disciples. Jesus fulfills the law by declaring the radical demands of the righteousness or right living for God. And this is what he stresses in the rest of Matthew chapter 5. And we'll see the first couple points today and the remainder next week. Jesus summed up his position in a single phrase, I came to accomplish their purpose. That was Jesus, his fulfillment of the law. And from this point forward, the scenario changed. What was begun in Eden, the Garden of Eden, was a perfect environment where God came down, heaven came down, and worshipped with both himself, his divine beings, and we as humans within Eden. But then something happened. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And from that point forward, because of their, their disobedience and ours also, that chain had been broken. That kingdom had been broken. But Christ set in motion when he came to earth once again to build God's kingdom here on earth. And that's what we are. We're citizens of God's kingdom. And we have a role to play in building that kingdom. We're not here just to take up space and breathe air. We are here for a purpose, just like Christ was accomplishing the purpose of the law. As a citizens of, citizen of God's kingdom, personal obedience is not enough, though. You might say, what? 
I mean, if I do what God tells me to do, is that not enough? And the Old Testament patriarchs thought that was enough. But it's more than that. <clears throat> the reason is that that was just the beginning of our task. So we obey, but if you remember last week, what were the two elements, salt and light? We're to be salt of the earth and light to the world. And that's our vocation. Now, we think of vocation in the 21st century as what we do. People think I'm related with computers and finances. Mike's a doctor. John's an engineer. Thelma's a nurse. And then we think of those things as our vocation. But as citizens of God's kingdom, our vocation is more than that. That is what God utilized, allowed us to use in order to further his kingdom on earth. But we are to be salt and light. Those are our vocation here on earth. And the remainder of Matthew chapter 5 contains examples of a greater, somewhat deeper, right living that we should aspire towards. It contains six parallel passages or paragraphs which illustrate the principle Jesus was submitted in verses 17 through 20, which was the preeminence of the moral law. What the scribes and Pharisees were doing to make obedience more readily attainable were they were, would, in the time of Christ, if you remember, they had a strict rule or set of rules and regulations. You could do this, you can't do that. You heal on Sabbath, you can't do that. That's part of the law. They had established a list of rules and regulations which were strict, but they could be followed. And if you followed those, you could be considered right living or righteous. And it's not unlike some churches today where we have a set of rules that we say, well, if you do this and don't do that, then you're a good Christian, regardless of our heart attitude. And what Christ is drilling down in this remainder of chapter 5 is not what we do or don't do, is what is our heart attitude behind what our actions are. Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, but he never disagreed with the authority of God's moral code. Rather, the reverse, Christ was much more concerned with a person's heart attitude than following a set of rules. So, John, the next passage. And this lesson is teaching about anger. This is a long one, so I'm not sure we'll get it all on the, this overhead. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. And if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before court. If you curse someone, which means call them a fool, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you are on your way to the court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge he will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you paid every last penny. So the main commandment here is the ones that the Pharisees focused on. You must not murder. And, and this is speaking of intentionally taking a person's life due to anger or premeditation. 
And it's not referring to war or accidental deaths, although if those have con- may have consequences if negligence was a factor. But in my mind, I can see the scribes and the Pharisees sitting around Jesus arguing with him. They puff up and say, yeah, we haven't murdered anybody. And Christ would, in my mind, I, you know, I have a sort of a, a twisted perversion of it, I think. But Christ says, duh, everyone knows you're not to murder somebody. But I want to teach you a deep, deeper lesson in this. Who doesn't understand that? Instead, Christ says, let me teach you about your relationships with others while you're still alive. Jesus is teaching us as a citizens of God's kingdom, it goes before whether we follow through with the act of murder. If we are angry enough to kill another person, we have committed that action in our hearts. This is what Christ is emphasizing here. Jesus goes on further to teach about anger, and it boils down on how we treat our fellow humans, especially those that are citizen, fellow citizens of the kingdom of God with us. Jesus is more concerned about our relationship with others than if we follow a, a, a little tidy list of do's and don'ts. So where is our heart? Let's ask our, own, our question to ourselves. Where is our heart, especially when our relationship with other people? Now, not all anger is evil, and it's evident by the wrath of God, which is always holy and pure. Even flawed humans can sometimes have righteous anger. Although I would say, being flawed, we should ensure that our anger is slow to rise and quick to die down. And Christ drills down on anger in verse 22. And this is another one I I probably struggle with somewhat. And I might not verbalize it, at least not outwardly, but it might come to mind, especially in today's crazy world, and it doesn't make sense sometimes, I think, what idiots. People are. But Jesus warns us against calling people, a, calling a person that Aramaic word, which means idiot, which is raka, and it appears that raka is an insult to a person's intelligence. Calling that person empty-headed, or some English parallels like nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, and bonehead. I recall a time or two, maybe, being called a numbskull when I was young. And I was, I, you know. My dad had it right, but (laughs) the verse continues on here to warn us about calling people a fool. Our modern day term for that is a moron, and it means the fool. And there again, I go in on my tangent to my little mind, and I see Christ sitting around with his disciples and with the Pharisees and, and scribes, and they're arguing with him and trying to refute what he's saying. And he just shakes his head and he says, you morons, you fools. You don't understand the deeper purpose behind what I'm trying to teach you. And this is what Christ is trying to get across to us in this passage, is the deeper purpose. Now these things, angry thoughts and insulting words, may never lead us to actually commit murder ourselves, Yet they are equivalent to murder in God's sight. As we read in 1 John chapter 3.15, anyone who hates his, another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. Anger and insults are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone else who stands in our way. Our thoughts, our looks, and our words all indicate that if we haven't verbalized it, 
we may have said in our head, I wish they were dead. And Jesus continued with verse 23 to give us practical application and principles that he just talked about. His theme was that if anger and insults are severe and dangerous, then we must avoid them like the plague and take action as quickly as possible. And he gives us two illustrations. The first one is the illustration in the temple, which today that would equate to our church. And the second one is the example of a court of law. In both cases, the basic situation is the same, that if we have a, somebody has a grievance against us or us against them, the lesson needs to be we need to take immediate, urgent action. The very act of worship, if we remember, a grievance while we're in that act of worship, we're to break off from our worship and go put it right. If we're going to court, somebody has a grievance against us, it says to settle it out of court before you get there. Otherwise, the consequences could be much more severe. We must not delay to put it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger. We must avoid murder in our hearts and in God's sight. And we must take every possible positive step to live at peace and love with all people. And that takes us to our next teaching, which is the next passage, John. And the teaching about adultery and lust. And this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. And you have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. As we continue on with Jesus' focus, it's about our relationship with others. He is more concerned with the spirit of the law than the letter of the law. The reference in the verse is to adultery, and this term in this passage, this particular verse, refers to fidelity in marriage. Now, Christ does give examples in other teachings about before marriage and other situations, but this specific one is about fidelity in marriage itself. And just like the prohibition to murder includes angry thoughts and insulting words, so the ban on adultery or being in, uh, unfaithful includes lustful looks and our imagination. And we can murder with our words, and we can commit adultery in our hearts and our minds. There's not a, the slightest suggestion here that a relationship, a pure relationship within marriage, is anything but God-given and beautiful, in which it is. The focus here is that we should not dwell or desire on obtaining something that is not ours to have. And this applies much more just to than faithfulness in marriage. Think about every other area of your life. And this is where it ties into lusting for something, desiring something that's not ours to have. Of course, in marriage, it applies to both the husband and the wife. It also applies to our relationship with others. God knows that it's a slippery slope from looking to lusting, from obtaining what we desire. 
It also starts in our hearts and in our minds. And the remainder of this section is somewhat troubling, though, because it goes on to talk about eyes and feet and maiming ourselves. That's not what God means here. The command to get rid of the troublesome eye, hands and feet, is an example of the Lord's use of a dramatic figure of speech. See, we don't understand the original language a lot of times, and Christ wasn't implying this is a literal thing that you should do. This was, he's making a dramatic figure of speech. What he is advocating is not a literal physical self-maiming, but a moral self-denial. We are to be willing to deny our desires because our desires to please God is more important. Let me read that once more. We are willing to deny our own desires because our desire to please God is more important. It's the same way in a marriage. It's the same way with any relationship that we have. To follow Christ means that we're to reject sinful practices so firmly that we put those practices to death. And this is his analogy of, of the eye and the hand. We're to put to death anything that's causing us to desire something that's not ours to have. So let me boil it down in a way that even I can understand. And it has to be pretty simple in order to get it down so I can understand it. Don't look at what is not yours to look at. Don't touch, that is what is not yours to touch. And don't wander to places where you would have the opportunity to either look or touch. So to recap for this week, which will continue next week, Christ came to complete the law and fulfill its purpose. The result of Christ fulfilling was the fulfilling purpose of the law, and we should apply the character traits that are found in the Beatitudes. Two weeks ago, we went through the Beatitudes. Last week, we went through the salt and the light. And that salt and the light is our influence on a decaying and dark culture. The evidence of our influence is what we're talking about this week and next week. It's through our right living. It's through the lessons in chapter 5, and we went over anger and desiring what is not ours to have today. Next week, we'll go over four more lessons. So you won't want to miss next week as we continue on Matthew chapter 5 on living right, which is evidence through our good deeds. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll have communion. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you came to fulfill the law. That was your purpose, Father, and that our purpose is to be salt and light to a decaying and dying and dark world. Help us to do so, Father. Thank you for the passages so we can understand clearly what you expect from us, that we're to put away anger and that we're not to desire that which is not ours to have, but we're to desire to please you in all things and in all ways. Pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, Learn continuously, lend to others generously, 
lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.